0: This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Nicholas Coleman. Nicholas is a unique, talented, and hard-working artist based out of Provo, Utah, and he paints some of the most interesting and beautiful works that I've ever seen. His primary subject matter is the American West, with a focus on landscapes, natural history, wildlife, Native American culture, and exploration. I came across Nick's work on Instagram, of all places. In the middle of the tens of thousands of images and noise and distraction on that app, one of Nick's images stood out from all the rest. It stood out so much that I wanted to see more, so I went to his website. The more I learned about Nick, the more impressed I was. He's a multifaceted guy with a fascinating backstory. Nick is not your stereotypical artist. He's a devoted hunter, fisherman, and trapper. And he's also a voracious reader who knows more about Western history than many college professors. He has a very focused and disciplined approach to his art, working six days a week and never just sitting around waiting to get in the right mood. With such a deep love of art and the American West, Combined with his rock-solid work ethic, it's no surprise that he's been able to make a name for himself in the very competitive and challenging world of professional art. I could have talked to Nick for hours because so many of his interests overlap with mine, and hopefully those interests will overlap with yours as well. We dug into the details of his art and his artistic process. We talked about some of his international travels to South America, Africa, New Zealand, and we also talked about how those travels influenced his life and work and outlook. We talked about his formal education, and if given the opportunity, would he do it again? And we also get some advice for aspiring artists. Finally, we talked a lot about Teddy Roosevelt, which is always fun for me. We covered a ton. One quick note on this episode, we were recording it on Skype, and we had a few times throughout the interview where the internet connection went dead, and I had to call him back. So if you notice a few parts that sound edited, that was just me splicing together the calls. And on that note, I just gave those maniacs at CenturyLink the boot, and I've got a guy coming from Comcast this afternoon to install new internet. So hopefully that'll solve that problem in the future. Anyway, be sure to check out the episode notes on the podcast webpage, because we name a ton of books, documentaries, and other interesting information that you should check out. I have links to all that at the bottom of the page. If you love the West, love books, and love learning about interesting people who are doing cool work, I guarantee you'll love this episode. So, when you meet somebody, what would you what do you tell them you do for a living? How do you explain your work?
1: Okay, so a lot of times I'll tell them I'm a painter or, uh, or or an artist. Sometimes you know when you say painter, you get confused with a, a house painter. <laughs> And uh, so, I have to explain that I'm an artist, and at the same time when I say artist I don't want to be thrown in with kind of the, the hippie kind of an artist you know paint paint and you get in the mood kind of a guy because mm-hmm. um, I definitely treat this like a job and and you know six days a week and and from you know when it gets light to when it gets dark at night and and uh, but then I kind of explained them that, you know I kind of paint the you know the, the history and the heritage of the american west and and uh, I've just kind of grown up with the love of uh, the outdoors and, and in history of the West and, and history of Utah, where where I'm from. And, and, uh, and there's such a neat, uh, rich history that, um, just growing up, I, you know, I read a lot of books and, uh, uh a lot of the old mountain man stories and the, the early Indians and, and, uh, just, just kind of fell in love. And, and my dad's a painter as well. And, and, uh, I just love the whole aspect of it, the lifestyle and, and, uh, and so, so far, it's been working out for me.
0: <laughs> well, just in that quick intro, you hit on all the subjects I want to cover. Um, and so, <laughs> we'll just to, kind of dive in and, and, and break it down. Um, so, so, you grew up, you're in Utah. You grew up there. How long has your family been there?
1: So, yeah, my dad's family is from Oak City, Utah, which is still a little, really small town and, and uh, uh and they, they had a farm out there when he was, uh, when his mom was younger and, and, but then I think they're from, I think, uh, Scotland, uh, and Denmark, that's kind of where their family came from. And, and then my mom's came from England in the late 1800s and, and they're from California and then Leadville, Colorado. Oh, wow. And then now, now they're, now we're here anyway. Um.
0: So did they come did they come straight from Europe to the west or were they were, were they on the east coast for a while and then made their way or
1: part of my yes part of my dad's family line kind of some came over on the Mayflower and then some uh, came over later, and then my mom's came from England, I think straight to the west coast Wow and uh, so kind of late 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 to the the game a little bit so
0: whenever I hear those those kind of stories, it just reinforces how not tough I am compared to those folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said you grew up hunting and fishing and trapping. Um, could you just, you know, talk a little bit about those experiences and, and how they've got translated into your work as an artist?
1: Oh yeah. So yeah, growing up, I kind of grew up in the river bottoms in Provo, Utah. And, uh, we had, we had a pond and a couple of rivers that used to come, f- you know, feed into our little neighborhood. And, and uh, we were kind of the neighborhood muskrat killers, uh, trappers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and that was just, you know, that was just normal to me, you know, that that's what we did. And and then we kind of lived next door to a golf course. And so we kind of took care of the muskrat problem for the golf course. And, and they kind of let us go fishing too on the rivers that came in and out. Uh, And they had a, you know, Memorial day, you know, fishing contest every year and they don't do that anymore, but that was pretty fun. And, and uh, we, we live pretty close to Provo Canyon, which is uh, home to all kinds of, you know, funny little animals and, and deer and, and, uh, black Bear now and and Mountain Lions and and but you know, just kind of growing up before school I th- I, don't, I think my dad just didn't want me to miss out on kind of how he grew up yeah. uh, cuz he he had a trap line and and that's how he'd buy his baseball mitts his first JC Higgins you know single shot 12 gauge and and uh he, he, we had stretcher boards and everything and and he you know taught me how to skin and and stretch a muskrat skin and and, uh, we were always after some mink, but the mink population is down a little bit or it used to be when I was a kid. And I think it's getting a little better now. And, and then raccoons up the Canyon and we'd go check the traps before school and then drop me off at school on the way home. So it it's pretty fun growing up.
0: That's and, for, did, did you have many friends that did that with you or was it kind of a family type thing? Mostly
1: a family thing. I had cousins, um, that we'd go hunting with, uh, in the fall, but it was mainly just, just my dad and I and, uh, and you know, going out looking for you know little bird hunts and and you know catching baby spotted skunks and and uh, we we brought home all kinds of funny animals to, to live with us for a little bit, but drove my mom nuts. But <laughs> uh, we couldn't help ourselves. So
0: that's um, do you do you I know you read a lot. Um, do you study Theodore Roosevelt much at all?
1: I do. He's one of my my favorite presidents for sure. Oh man,
0: we could talk for Then that's <laughs> I, that's all I do is basically read Theodore Roosevelt books. But I okay. just read one. It's a new one. It just came out a few months ago called The Naturalist. Have you heard about this one?
1: I have, but I haven't got, I haven't
0: got to that one. It's just really good. But basically, what you're talking about was was Theodore Roosevelt's childhood as well. You know, just going out trapping. He he was mostly focused on birds as a, as a child, but you know, the same kind of thing and just this obsessive love of, of animals. And, um, you know, it, it, influences politics just like it influenced your, your art. Um, so, so when you look back on those experiences, um, is, are there any particular ones you think it, not, it could be hunting, could be fishing just, or any childhood experience you had that was pretty pivotal or formative in kind of directing you towards this career in art,
1: it's hard to say if there's you know, a pivotal moment. There were so many of them, I guess you'd, you'd maybe say. Uh, just my dad re- constantly reinforcing, you know, going into the outdoors and how magical the outdoors were and the amazing things you could find outside. And you know, I have a lot of little bones and, and furs and skulls that have followed me home from, you know, just, just exploring. And and our, one of our good friends is, is the director at the, the natu- or the, the university natural history museum. And as a little kid, my dad would take this over there and my, he was, my, sorry, I'm rambling now. I'm getting, getting ahead of myself. He was, a, my dad's a taxidermist too for a while. Mm-hmm. And he just, he actually just recently, uh, freeze dried a little muskrat for me. And, and, uh, that I got duck hunting a, about a year ago now. And, and, uh, he's kind of, he's stuffing a fox for me too right now. Um, uh, but he's, he, he's still over there. And, and as a little kid, he would go into the basements and he'd pull out all the drawers of all the nests and the eggs and the little study skins of all the little birds and and to to me that was just magical to seeing the the variety and all the all the species of, of birds and and animals and and in my mind I'm thinking because even now i mean I, I could probably name a few hundred or maybe close to a thousand animals, but that's not even you know a drop in the bucket to to what the earth holds and and all the funny little critters and everything that is on the earth so it's just it's just amazing to me how the the variety of of wildlife that's out there and yet to be seen by me. So
0: oh yeah, it's amazing. You really you will love that that Theodore Roosevelt book because they talk. It's the story of Theodore Roosevelt, but then it's also the story of natural history in the United States and the history of that whole movement. And they go into all the details about how they preserve the the hides and, and they, you know, talk about how they catalog them in the natural history museums. They talk about the Smithsonian versus the, uh, you know, the, the natural history museum in New York. Um, it'll be your, your dream book.
1: <laughs> have you read uh, There's a great book, uh, by Carl Akeley, uh, an African obsession. No, I have not. So he was almost, he was one of Roosevelt's friends and uh, they went hunting. One of the first trips that Roosevelt took to Africa was with this guy or okay. they met up in Africa or something. I can't remember the exact details. Uh, but he did a lot of. He was in charge of getting the African wing at the Natural History Museum in, in New York. That was kind of his legacy, you know, dream come true kind of a thing. But it took him almost his whole life, and almost cost him his life a few times, you know, to get actually done. And uh, but yeah, he was a friend of Roosevelt. Almost, he was almost. He almost got to do the the memorial after Roosevelt died. Um, but it was going to cost. I think. I think at the time, like three or four million dollars. It was something oh, crazy. Wow. they couldn't do and then i think i think james james Earl frazier may have got to do it or i can't remember who's got to do it so yeah they
0: they mentioned that guy uh the book kind of concludes with with roosevelt's big year-long um hunting expedition to africa and they they talk a lot about that guy and what's the name of the book again
1: Uh, an african obsession okay Carl Aikley, Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good read for sure. So.
0: I'll put, um, notes on the webpage for this podcast. I'll put notes and links to all these books cause I'm sure we'll mention a few more. So, yeah,
1: <laughs> um, yeah, Carl Aikley, So one, one neat thing about Carl Akley is you know, he wanted some mountain gorillas for, for the museum. And then after he shot one and was, you know, on it, on it looking at it and uh, he was kind of shocked how, you know, close to, to, to human it was. And, and then he realized how many hunters were going to come over to Africa to hunt, you know, gorillas. But because of him, you know, early turn of the century, uh, I think probably because of him that they're they're still alive today. Otherwise, with early early conservation efforts, um, but anyway, yeah. he was responsible for getting those guys saved. Sure, Where, and
0: and that's one thing I, I had on my list for later on. But since we're talking about it, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Uh, they met, they talk about this a lot in that that book I keep mentioning, and you just brought it up. And there's a huge misconception that kind of really, really annoys me. And people think that hunting and a love of nature or conservation are mutually exclusive. It's obviously people who've never been hunting and don't understand it. But, you know, I was wondering if I'd love to get your perspective on that, because obviously hunting and fishing and trapping has played a huge part in your life and in your career. And I think your your art helps to preserve the American West and the heritage of the American West. And you love these animals and love the, the West and the land and wildlife more than anybody, you know, it better than anybody. And so can you talk a little bit just about how hunting has, has made you more of a conservationist and more kind of in love with, the uh, with the American West and beyond?
1: Yeah. As, as I've, I've traveled and, and with my dad and, and by myself and with friends, uh, You know, just locally uh, here in Utah and then up up in Wyoming and Montana and and, uh, up into Canada and uh, Alaska, the more hunters you get to know, the more places you know. You know where your your money is going, you know, preserving the places uh, where you're hunting. Otherwise, you know, there's so much money that gets poured into, um, you know, hunting licenses. and, Mm -hmm. And I think I was reading an article here in Utah that talks about how many deer are killed, you know, just by cars. The cars alone do a lot more damage than the hunters do mm-hmm. and the hunters are, tr- are trying to help that. So that doesn't happen on the roads. And, uh, uh, and even in Africa, uh, I, 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 am let's see how long ago, about, about 20, almost 20 years ago. Now I got to go with my dad to Africa once to Tanzania and, and you, you run into hunters or not hunters, sorry, farmers, uh, who are kind of going out into the wild to, to, to have their farms and the animals, of course, come through and eat everything, and, and they just shoot the animals. Uh, and the the only way that the land is, the animals get to survive is if the, you know, the, the money is there to to keep keep the people out of the wild areas, and and uh, so much you know money goes to the, the local plate the places and the, the people that keep these animals alive, and, and then people get mad when they see you know a picture of a guy. And granted, there are you know, jerk hunters and stuff like that, but a majority. Yeah money there's so much money and the only reason the animal is still alive is because of the hunters
0: yes and yeah i completely i mean you look at, at any species uh, you know just focus on the american west and um if it weren't for the hunters uh you know bison would have been extinct no question about it and you can just go down the list it was the same for elk same for deer and it was you know it, it was a lot of these um kind of wealthy eastern hunters who had the sense to, to they wanted to be able to continue hunting and wanted to be able to continue enjoying the west and so they you know they were able to pull some strings up high to make it make it happen you know everything from the Boone and Crockett Club to, to actual government regulations so um, i, I don 't know why people can't get that it, it's uh, it's a constant source of frustration for me
1: <laughs> yeah, my friends and I talk about this, and my dad and I talk about this and, and it 's it's weird because they get it's the same people who I think you know, grow up in the cities, don't get out much or don't have the opportunity to get out much. I kind of feel bad for them sometimes. Sure. And, uh, they think that, you know, people who go hunting or like guns or nuts, you know, and mm-hmm. I look at people who maybe, uh, are drinking and partying on the weekend. I think they're nuts. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so you think about the problems with alcohol and, and drugs and all kinds of other, you know, inner city problems. And, you know, so many things could be solved if they, someone took them outside to go camping, you know, once in a while and and, uh, show, showed them what, what, how the other half lives, I guess.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. Unfortunately though, it's, it's not even the other half anymore. I think it's like the, the okay. other 1% or 2% of people actually get out and, you know, push themselves hard. Um, so you mentioned your trip to Africa and then just in doing a little bit of research, I saw that you've, you've spent some time in South America, I think, uh, New Zealand, um, it, can you talk a little bit about how those that, those trips, that international travel, has influenced your outlook, and then also your art?
1: Um, yeah, uh, the, the traveling. I mean, what's what's so funny is, is you get. I've, I've been able to travel. I've been really lucky to be able to travel, and you just kind of see, you know, different cultures, and and realize, you know, how gr- how grateful you I am for. Uh, the freedoms we do have and uh, living down in Brazil as a missionary down in Brazil, you know, doing service and, and, and I remember asking, talking to people about hunting and how a lot of guns were illegal and hunting was illegal. And, but then seeing, you know, how, you know, the drug problem and that there were guns down there and people, you know, just up the street from me getting, you know, killed and, and weird funny gunfights and bolt- stray bullets hitting the outside of our houses where we're having lunch and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and talk about a pretty you know and a wild place, Brazil can be I was down towards the south
0: oh uh, it 's the frontier, man,
1: oh yeah, and uh, um, but I, I just I remember thinking to myself, man, if these people knew you know you know my background or where i come f- came from, I would imagine I would be kidnapped but uh, <laughs> and held for ransom, but I, I think you 're in there in a service capacity, and they, they kind of if they can some leave, leave you alone, you know if they 're looking for trouble and, and other times I was able to you know talk my way out of some of the dangerous situations I got myself into and, and, uh, but just talking, talking to people and, mm-hmm. and then, uh, but then going, going to other places like New Zealand where it's a little bit more laid back and, and it kind of feels like you're transported back in time. And, and, uh, you know, the hunting was a little bit more relaxed and, and, uh, um, it just, uh, you, I, I'm just, I'm just thinking back to, to, you know, the amazing mountains and, and, uh, you know, some of the, you know, you, you just feel good when you get out into open places, I think. And, and, uh, I, th- I think there's, there's something t- t- to be said about that. You know, if, if, if all else, uh, hunting gets, gets you to places that you wouldn't go otherwise. And regardless, if you, if you bring anything home with you, uh, I, I think you're better for it. So.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, inherently you're going to be pushing yourself physically when you're out there. And if you're in a foreign country, you're pushing yourself mentally. Cause you're at least when I go to foreign countries, I'm a little, little on edge, but I think it, it stretches your comfort zone and makes you a, a better person in the end. At least that's my experience. Yes. Um, so you are, um, from, from what I understand, you've been painting and, and drawing and, and doing art your entire life. And then you've also got a degree. Uh, that's what you majored in, in college. Is that, is that correct? It is. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on being self-taught versus being, um, you know, uh, academically trained in art, because it seems like you've got kind of the best, you've got both. Um, and so <laughs> you, what do you think about that?
1: <laughs> so I think now there's more for, for an artist, there's more opportunities now, I think with, with the internet and, and the different uh, academic schools that have actually popped up in the last few years. Uh, when I was 21, uh, getting back from Brazil, boy, I, I, you know, I wished, I remember reading a lot of books on, on the early academies in France and, and New York and, and uh, thinking, oh man, I you know I longed for that that kind of an education. I think I the idea of it was probably better of it, better than if I actually would have done it because I'm kind of a – kind of someone tells me what to do and I kind of do my knee jerk reaction is to do the opposite of what tell me <laughs> yeah. to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then so I, at the college I went to it here in Provo uh, Brigham Young University, I definitely ran into some opposition. You know, kind of doing what I do now. You know the um, you know, landscapes and and wildlife and, and uh, historical uh, scenes. And, and, you know, people tell me that's already been done. And, and, you know, my kind of response was, well, it hasn't been done by me. (laughs) And I love this stuff too much not to do it. You know, you can't, you know, how, how can you tell me not to do it? You know, that, that was the confusing part is because they're kind of trying to push this, you know, postmodernism thing and tell me to, to use my imagination more. And, and they, they didn't really have any, any examples to show me, which was, you know, as teachers, you'd think that they were professors, they would, do that kind of stuff, but it was kind of a backwards, it was kind of, you know, fighting uh, against this weird standard that they couldn't even show me or explain to me. And, and uh, so I did my best to do what they wanted me to do. And I did their assignments and, and, uh, but definitely growing up with my dad, he was my best teacher, even though he'll say he was, you know, wasn't made for teaching or he was the worst kind of teacher. But I think a lot of it had to do with you know my enthusiasm and especially my dad because his was kind of self taught and he had a similar experience at the same college and told a professor that he actually likes it. You got to quit, man. This is this isn't doing you any favors. And and uh, did he quit? He quit. Yeah. Wow. And then my mom, she told me she goes, "You have to go."
0: <laughs>
1: she goes, "So if you finish, I'll let you do whatever you want to do." And so that was kind of my. That's what I had kind of had to do. So I went every term and semester. So I was done in about two years. And, oh, nice. And I, I think if I had stopped, I probably wouldn't have gone back. So,
0: Do you think it gave you a kind of a, a good, I don't know, like a base level of knowledge that you don't even really know you have now? Or was it, I mean, are you, are you glad you went or do you think it would, you would do it, would you do it again?
1: I, right now I wouldn't do it again. But, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but it probably did do me good in that it focused me. And you know, when people tell you, do something. And then, you know, my, like I said, my, my reaction was, well, yeah, I'll show you.
0: Let me, I wanted to talk a little bit about your artistic process because in the interviews I've read online, um, it it looks like you have a very business, like almost like a blue collar work ethic for your art. It's no messing around, no waiting for the mood to strike that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm not artistic myself, um, but I love learning about artists and I love reading books about artists and learning how they, how they work. And so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, that work ethic that you bring to your art.
1: So, yeah, I think this has to with, with just growing up with my, my parents who definitely instilled into me a good, uh, a work ethic, whether it was, you know, weeding the yard, uh, every day in the summer, mm-hmm, carrying mm-hmm. rocks from one side of the yard to the other side and clearing trees and you know i think just a good work ethic applies to about anything you know you want to approach in any profession i think um but even when it uh when it came to art i remember in high school thinking how does my dad stay in his studio all day long and and i mean he got out uh, over the years uh, it's almost insane the amount of time he was able to get out and i think it was almost you know slower time there wasn't the internet or crazy deadlines to, you know, get, you know, paintings done as, as fast as people want them these days. And, and, uh, I mean, he used to pack paintings up and, you know, take them down to Greyhound and, you know, build his own boxes and stuff them with newspaper and, you know, uh, goodness, I, uh, some things are better and some things are worse, I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but then, then with me, uh, like I, said, then I say I served a mission down in Brazil for a couple of years and, and I, and I think just down there, I, I learned you just, you just get to work. Um, especially, especially when you're, you know, doing one thing, uh, specifically. And, and when, when I got home from Brazil, I just went right to work painting again and, and, uh, and knowing exactly what I wanted to do and, and how to approach it. And, and, uh, even at, you know, at first, you know, I just kind of painted a few small paintings and I, um, I just, I just put the time in and, and, uh, I just kind of went from there. So, and, I've had a lot of artists come to me and, you know, and, and my dad, especially when I was a kid, a lot of artists come, have come to my dad and ask him, you know, what is what his secret is. And because and, he's he's had some uh, amazing success over the years and and um, and part of it, he asked him what their what their work ethic is. And a lot of people, you know, hears well when I get in the mood, I sit down and I paint and when the mood strikes me. And, and he's like, well, he, he says, you can't have that attitude, you know, and, and even, even when you're sick. I mean, there's, there's no magic elves that come in at night that paint your paintings for you, you know, and there's nobody else but you that's doing work. And if you're not willing to do that, I mean, you really need to find something else to do. And, and, uh, you know, my, my president where I was serving down in Brazil, uh, I I worked in his office for a little bit, uh, doing financial work for him. And, and, uh, he asked me, he goes, I I don't think, I don't think I was a good office, uh, uh, person for him. And he kind of told me, cause I don't ever see you sitting behind a desk when you go home. <laughs> I, said, I don't either. <laughs> and, uh, or, you know, work, I had, I it's just, I have a hard time working for somebody else, I think. And, and that, that, that aspect, that aspect of it as well. And uh, cause they, you know, different people that were in charge of you telling you what to do. And I always thought I could do it better. And for the most part, I still think I, I could or can. And, and, uh, but yeah, I think you just with, – with everything, you got to – just got to buckle down and, and treat it like a, a real job. Otherwise, no one else is going to do it for you.
0: I read a uh, quote – it was some author and I can't remember who he was. But he said that he only writes when he feels inspired. But luckily, inspiration hits every morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> yeah, yep,
1: yep. I think I've read that one there's a place too. Yeah, that's, that's a good one for sure.
0: There's a, there's a good book. I bet you read it called The War of
1: Art. Have you read that by Stephen Pressfield? No, but I, 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 that sounds familiar, though.
0: Oh man, you'll you'll love. It. I'll send it to you as a as a thank you for doing this. Um, you'll love it. it. It's all about that. Just about how you have to, whether you're doing art or you're, you know, creating anything. Anytime you are creating something, there you just have to get to work. You just have to sit down, get to work, and um, you you'd love it. I'll send it your way um, the, later this week. Um, so. What does your typical day look like? I mean, what do, do you have a certain time that you start every day, or how, how does that work?
1: Uh, with before before family, before little kids, I definitely used to get up uh fairly early and you know get right into the studio. And, and a lot of it was looking through books, looking through my photographs, uh, you know, answering emails, stuff like that. And then with children lately, um, the last few years it's changed a little bit to now, so I get up now and my first thing I try to do is I, I try to exercise a few years ago. I, I thought, man, I, I all of a sudden I realized I was getting old and, uh, <laughs> so now, yeah, definitely I throw an exercise into the mix. Uh, so I go running, um, and I do some other, other, other exercises as well. But, um, so I go running first, I come back, eat breakfast, and then I kind of, uh, I just come into the studio and, and, you know, tr- you know, answer a c- couple emails and, and I try not to get, you know, stuck looking at the computer too much. Uh, That's hard to, to do. It is hard to do sometimes. And, and uh, I like, I like Facebook. Some people I follow on Facebook are, you know, people who post uh, wildlife photographs. And, and so I, I do like to look at that kind of, that kind of work. Uh, if I, if I am going to be on the internet is, is looking through, um, you know, places I either need to go, want to go, <laughs> I wish I could go. Sure. Um, but then, then I got, then I have definitely always have a a list of things I need to get done, things I want to start. And, uh, I'm looking around the studio right now going, Oh, what do I got to finish now even?
0: Yeah. So talk a little bit about your studio. I've seen some photos online and hopefully I'll be able to include a photo on the webpage for the podcast. Um, but it looks really cool. It looks like a dream for somebody who loves natural history, history, books, art, I mean it kind of hits on everything <laughs> so that's, can you talk a little bit about it
1: so yeah so uh i think i have my dad to blame We're both of us are kind of pack rats uh and we definitely like to find neat old stuff uh kind of old old beadwork um for, for, you know from the late 1800s and if we can find anything earlier that's that's even better um all the kind of heads and horns that we've hunted over the years and and dragged home with us are are here and and a few, a few of my things are down in my dad's studio, like my little, my muskrat that I, I shot last, uh, I felt bad I had to shoot it. It was the last day of duck season, and I just scared away about 25 ducks that flew south and never came back. <laughs> and I saw a little muskrat waddle out, and you know, onto the, this frozen pond, and I'm like, well, he's a goner. <laughs> <And laughs> he's living
0: forever, though, in the studio. He's, he's, he's a lot more famous than he would have been.
1: He's, he's, good, he's, a good, he's good looking, so um, I'm glad All I got right. that guy. And I, I, t- I tend to paint you know in my landscapes little muskrats always make their way into my my paintings so uh, hopefully he's he's immortal somewhere along the way. Um, <laughs> um, so
0: you obviously love history. Um, what role does as your love of history played in your in your work? I know you have a lot of Native American themed pieces that I've seen online. Is there a is there a certain time period that you especially like?
1: I do yeah yeah from. Well, I really like uh, eighteen hundred to the early nineteen hundreds, and the last few months, it's been you know kind of even the nineteen tens and twenties and thirties, kind of the early sportsmen, um, you know, fishing in canoes and 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 kind of the Adirondacks and and the, uh, you know certain lakes up up in Canada and, and uh, uh, but did, yeah, this is kind of kind of the early craftsmanship of the. Of the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s there's just you know certain way uh men built things uh that just still stands out that, that are works of art you know the, the old guide boats or the early birch park canoes and and uh e- even the early early motorcycles um indian and harley davidson motorcycles okay. turn of the century are I've, I've made their way in a couple a couple of my paintings recently and and uh there's, there's some, something kind of, even though it's not timeless, there's something timeless in, in my mind—the kind of romantic vision of, of my West uh, that I want to see and, and share with people, and, and uh, um, to just make it make it fun for me to, to be in the studio and, and paint. I think so.
0: When you're creating a piece of art, do you base it? Uh, it's for like a landscape. Do you base that on? A specific place that you've been or you've seen photos of, or is it imagined, or is it kind of a combination of both
1: kind of yeah definitely uh, mostly all my my paintings are, are based in some place that i've been um, and then then uh, it, it'll kind of it'll get, uh, what's the word uh, oh, my brain is failing me um <laughs> <laughs> it'll expand from you know a, a place that I've been then I'll go to a sketch and then I'll pull a photograph from my trip, you know, back in the studio and then whatever, you know, what I want to see in that, that that's kind of where, you know, my imagination will, will, uh, you know, change it a little bit, um, t- to see certain things that maybe weren't there when I was there, you know, the early, early, um, you know, Blackfeet camps up, up near glacier national park.
0: Yeah. Um, that's beautiful up there. It's so
1: pretty up there. And, uh, yeah, there's just certain things I want to see in the landscape that I can imagine that used to be there that were there. And I, you know, I'm kind of bringing a full, um, color version of it, you know, back to that. I love the old black and white photographs, but, um, I definitely love to bring life back into those ideas.
0: Yeah. There's again, I'm not an artist, so I don't even know the right words to describe it, but I, I came across your work on Instagram of all places. I think, uh, filson the outdoor company i think they had featured some of your work and you know on on these social media things there's just so much so many inputs and you're just scrolling through and half of it doesn't even register but i remember when i came across it was one of your landscape uh pieces native american piece and it just i just froze it and i stared at it and it was the the colors are what drew me in and then when you look the the level of detail that you are able to do without it looking like a photograph you know it's still uh it's very artistic um and that's that's one question I had about the the level of detail especially I've noticed on some of the Native American pieces did did that take a lot of research to figure out how to how to paint those those people so that it is historically accurate
1: Definitely and so yeah a lot a lot of reading and a lot of studying old photographs and between my dad and I with all the kind of the war shirts that we have the blankets uh, the moccasins the knife cases the the pipe bags and and all kinds of stuff um, we've been able to, you know, for the most part recreate it as, you know, as, as historically accurate as we, as we can. And there's a lot of other artists that will do it. You know, there's, um, there's always, you know, that kind of I stereotype, you know, the charging Indian or, you know, fighting cowboys and Indians and, sure. and the kind of what might, what I think my dad and I like to approach and, and see is, is uh, kind of just the restful living part of, of the West, you know, where, you know, surviving or, or back in camp um, w- w- with your campfire and, and just, just living, you know, the life. And it's not, it's not a wild and woolly life, even though I like that aspect of it too. Um, just cause the West was s- such a harsh place to live um, or used to be anyway. And, and, uh, but I think, think through our own, our own um, experiences, you know, camping and hunting and, you do kind of get a sense and reverence for, you know, how, how life was lived, and 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 you just kind of kind of again share your enthusiasm and and uh, you know passion for, for for that and that kind of that way of life, and I think that does that's why people like it and are drawn to it. Is is people that actually do get out and go hunting or have been out to some of these open places, they kind of and I've heard this from a lot of people, and this this is what kind of makes me feel good is. It's not that they're complimenting the artist; they kind of say, "Oh, it feels like I've been there before. It's yeah. like I could walk into that painting, and and that that those are the kind of compliments I like to hear because it you know kind of we're kind of kindred spirits, um, and uh, it, it just make, makes makes feel that much better like I'm doing my job right.
0: Yeah, well, it drew me in. And again, you know, I, I appreciate art, but I don't, I don't know it um, on, a, on a real deep level. But the, the minute I saw yours and then I, I went to your website, I was thinking, you know, this guy's interests overlap with mine about 100%. Um, as far as back to the Native Americans, if you had to recommend one or two books, if somebody doesn't know anything about Native Americans uh, in the West and they want to get a good overview, do you have any good books that you would recommend?
1: Um, yeah, let's see. I might even have them right here next to me. Um, actually there's one, let's see, it's called, there's kind of one, I can make this right behind me, one second. A couple of my favorites, there's one that, it also is is paired with some fantastic illustrations. Uh, It's called Indian Why Stories. Uh, sparks from War Eagle's Lodge Fire. Uh-huh. And it's by Frank B. Linderman and it's illustrated by Charles M. Russell. Oh, yeah. And then there's another book that I liked and it's called uh, Crowfoot. And uh, he was an early, uh, I think he was one of the um, chiefs of the, the Blackfeet Nation. And he had an interesting vision of uh, the white man uh, coming to the West and kind of devouring what, you know, what, what, what used to be the West. So he, he had kind of had a, a prophetic vision of what was going to happen. And he was trying to kind of get along with the white man and as opposed to fight him, cause he realized how many they were coming from Europe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that, that's also an interesting, uh, read as well.
0: That's great. I, I hadn't heard of either of those. That's exactly why I ask. Um, if you had to look back at your art, say over the last 10 years, are there any changes or, or what changes have you seen in your art that you may not have guessed were going to happen 10 years ago?
1: Um, let's see. Yeah, it's funny. Every once in a while, I'll look back six months or even a year or, and you know, I'll see something online of mine that I haven't seen in a number of years. And sometimes I go, Hey, that's a good one. <laughs> and I wonder how in the world or where I came up with that idea. And, uh thinking why on the earth am I not doing more of those um, and then sometimes I kind of think wow what was I thinking why did I do that <laughs> and uh, it's it's funny how over the years it kind of evolves and, and your int- your interest levels change in c- certain aspects uh, of history you know it depends on what I'm reading sometimes it depends on where, I've, where i where I travel to or go hunting um, but for the yeah, for the most part it's just I'm I've noticed, you know, my, my, my figures are getting, you know, a little tighter. Uh, and, uh, are just, I think just, you know, that some of the, some of the, uh, the compositions are a little more complex and, and, you know, just are, everything seems just to feel a little better. I don't know. It's hard to say sometimes when you're, if I sure. work, but, uh, some things don't take as long as they used to, or you don't fight certain subjects sometimes like, like you used to, um, they just kind of your brush i don 't know sometimes like, it 's funny sometimes things just happen mm-hmm. actually, you know easier than they used to is I guess the only evolution i can I can think
0: to is this is kind of a weird question, but when you paint is it is it difficult for you i mean does it is it kind of a thrashing type process or is it enjoyable when you 're doing it, or maybe a little both because I know whenever I write and i 'm not a, a ultra talented writer or anything but it is excruciatingly hard. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I just wonder, is that the case when you're painting or is it, how, how does it feel when you're doing it?
1: Sometimes like that, the verse, when you first start on, on a blank canvas, it's probably one of the best feelings you can have. Cause you haven't screwed it just yet, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can see that, but you know, as you're, as you're painting, you might have an idea, but of course it, it changes probably as, as you know, as you're writing too, it changes as, as you're going along and hopefully for the better, because, like, the idea and then I think with the um, what you to call it? the constraints of, of, you know, the tubes of paint and your brush, your hand and your eye, uh, trying to get what's in your brain out onto a piece of canvas, you know, things obviously change. And, and it definitely is. Your, you, it is a, Sometimes it's a battle. And uh, I think some, some of the best paintings, are, you know, can happen that way. And sometimes for whatever reason it just works out right as you're going along along and it comes out just like you want it to. But those are, those days are more rare, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but they're, they're nice when they happen. At least, at least they happen, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on this, this little horse and rider right now. And in my brain, I'm like, Oh, these will be, no, they're nine by 12 inches. And I'm doing a couple for a show up in Jackson hole pretty soon. And, and I'm like, oh, this will take me no time at all. And, and for whatever reason, they're taking me so much more time than I wanted them to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Again, I'm I'm not even close to being on your level as far as any of that. But that's how it is with writing. I mean, it's just sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. But it, you appreciate it when it does come. <laughs> um, so you've obviously embraced technology. Um, that's how I was introduced to your work. What are your thoughts on technology? I mean, obviously, I think it makes it makes it easier for the word to spread, but is it? Do you do you think net positive, net negative? What do you think?
1: In the long run, run it probably is po- positive, but it sure is frustrating. Because mm-hmm. uh, it, it kind of feels like if you're not participating, then no one and no one knows who you are. Yeah, it's easy to get forgotten. Like even my dad, I, I try to my brother and I kind of try to keep up on his website and keep him current and relevant, just because. You know, when he was really uh, current, you know, popular in the late 70s and 80s, um, it was, you know, all word of mouth. But there wasn't the Internet. There wasn't. I mean, there was, you know, some of the magazines were advertising. uh, But my dad, I mean, he could almost sell his paintings as fast as he could paint them. And it's not like he was even trying to do that. Uh, But now and and I think he was one of the only artists doing what he was doing uh, kind of in the Western genre. and, And now I mean, his competition and my competition, holy cow, there's so many other artists. I go up, you know, up to Jackson Hole or I go down to Santa Fe and, and even New York to, you know, some of these shows and I see the galleries and I see all of the artwork you have to wade through. And I go, oh, and I'm one of these people, you know, so that, 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 that aspect kind of uh, frustrating. Um, but like I say, if you're, if you're not constantly keeping up, you know, say with Instagram or, or, uh, or Facebook or whatever, um, you tend you, you can get forgotten pretty pretty easily and and when I first got kind of started and I was you know thinking my galleries would do more of this and a lot of times they they are responsible for advertising and and you know, their they're client getting you know the word out about you to their clientele and uh, I think if you in this day and age if you wait around for anybody else to do your job or you know to spread the word about you you're going to be waiting a long time yeah and so I try to help my galleries as much as I can and. and do you know on my own do as much as i can cuz i think if i waited around um, for other people to do to do something for me i think i'd be waiting a long time so sure that that's where technology comes in handy but then i, was, I, I my wife and i we just upgraded to new phones and i was i think i had a headache for 2 days just trying to upgrade these stupid things <laughs> try to get get rid of photographs to so the new phone could fit in the old phone and um, It'll drive you nuts if you let it.
0: I think your your, uh, morning routine, though, of trying to, you know, being very mindful of not getting sucked into it, because I was reading a book the other day, and they were talking about it, and they said, you know, they've got – teams and teams and teams of people with PhDs in psychology trying to figure out how to make that stuff as addictive as possible. So it's, you're swimming upstream to, 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 to keep it out of your life or keep it under control.
1: I don't know why I haven't clicked on it. Um, speaking of being totally distracted, um, it's, it's, it's up. It, it was one of the funny things is, what you don't know about deodorant and why you should know about it. They got you. I, thought, I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that something about like aluminum and deodorant, you don't want to do it. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if I said something about that. And I'm pretty sure this whole stupid thing was to, get you to buy motor, more deodorant. It was, did you know that you should put deodorant on more than two times a day? And then you go, uh-huh. Click the next one and it says, and you sweat at night too. I'm like, uh-huh.
0: Yeah, they know <laughs> so, what they're doing, man.
1: I'm done. This this is stupid. They're trying to get me to buy more deodorant. There's no way I want to smell like an old Spice guy forever. (laughs) Oh,
0: Oh, man. Um, So one of my passions is is land conservation, um, particularly in the American West. And – I do a lot of work with land trust here in Colorado, helping them uh, kind of manage the conservation easement process. And I've found over the years that when you tell people that you work in conservation, conservation means a lot of things to a lot of people and not, nobody's necessarily wrong, but you know, you think about down in Brazil, conservation could mean saving uh, the rainforest or saving some certain species. And out here it can mean, uh, you know, anything from saving working ranches to, turning places in nature preserves where no human can ever go. So what does conservation mean to you?
1: So over the, over the years, I've been able to help with, uh, there's one up in Montana, but, uh, the guy that, uh, started, it was uh, Doug Seuss, uh, it's called vital ground. And, uh-huh. it, and it was, it was to acquire, you know, wild land for grizzly bears uh, mm-hmm. to kind of create a bigger habitat for grizzly bears. And, and, uh, and it, in my early twenties, I was able to you know donate art you know they had a you know a fundraiser and, and they were able to raise art or raise funds you know through this selling of paintings and other other things you know to help raise money for um for, uh, for land for grizzly bears and and that that's kind of, was kind of my first um, foray into into uh, land conservation and and it helped with wildlife as well and and uh um but I, I think a lot of it, you know, even with when we start working with different people and, and I think if you're – people are – if you're just made aware at least that these things happen, they exist, uh, um, I think it can help people understand that there is a need for it. Um, and like even even Teddy Roosevelt, I mean I, I remember standing in line at the New York History Museum – Natural History Museum in New York and reading, you know, the some, – some of his um, – quotations about conservation and, and how important it is. And it's, it's neat to see how, um, uh, he especially, you know, saw into the future and, and saw the need for it and saw what was going to happen without it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he, yeah, just knowing, knowing of him too at an early age, uh, you know, keep kept me kept my eyes and my mind open to, uh, being able to, you know, at least try to help, um, try to sa- save land for future generations and future animals that, that needed needed more help th- than that they weren't getting otherwise. I mean, because what, what, what can they do for themselves, really? Yep. Other than wander around and, and get in trouble. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think from my perspective, it seems like you, you create an emotional connection between people and the land. And, you know, whether your emotional connection comes from hunting or from hiking or from mountain biking or whatever, I think in order for somebody to be a conservationist, they need to have an emotional connection to the land. And I feel like you do a a wonderful job with that Um, just instantly. Like I said, when I was flipping through Instagram, I saw it and I was just drawn in. Um, Speaking of Theodore Roosevelt, just to go off on a side note here, what are your favorite Theodore Roosevelt books? If you were to recommend books for somebody who doesn't know much about him.
1: A good one, uh, I my wife driving, I was driving her nuts by being excited and telling her stuff after, you know, every day of reading it. And she's like, really? <laughs> Our
0: wives could start a support group together on
1: that. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think the one, there was a Theodore Rex was a good one. Yeah. And because that, that, that was a pretty good overview. And then, uh, what was the other one just called? Teddy Roosevelt?
0: The uh, The first one? In, yeah. In, yeah the
1: rise of theodore Roosevelt. Right, that, that that one there we go yeah that's and, that's the one i always recommend yeah, that's a good one and uh just his attitude i mean he, like i say he didn't there was no dust settled on that guy i mean he just he, he saw something needed to happen or wanted to have happen and you know the secretary of the navy left he de- he stepped in and de- declared declare war, war. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah i love that that story we uh and yeah, I, I, that's what I really admire about that guy is that he was he was born into a privileged situation, but he did not waste a single minute of his life.
1: No, no, yeah, for sure. He read a book a day,
0: which is insane. It is insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as going back to conservation, um, are there any specific lessons that you're teaching your children about conservation? Or are you kind of doing the the same thing that your father did for you just getting them out and conne- creating that connection between them and, and wildlife and nature and the the land
1: definitely yeah we definitely do that and like, my, my little boy's eight and he's in the cub scouts and so we, we talk about you know conservation uh, you know at that level and and we talk about you know cleaning up our trash and so we're, we're you know starting with you know just the basics and and my wife uh is a little bit crazy when it comes to recycling and, and so she always is telling the kids not to throw away certain things and and telling me not to throw away certain things and yep. so, so they're, getting, they're getting nailed from both both angles, Cup Scouts and their mom. So that's <laughs> <Yeah>. good.
0: <laughs> that is good. Um and so I'm sure you get approached by young artists or aspiring artists all the time who are would love to kind of emulate your success are there any, is there any advice that you give those folks kind of standard advice? I would, I would guess there's the artistic advice and then there's kind of the practical advice um, about the work ethic and, and, you know, really putting in the time. Is there, do you, would, do you have any advice for anybody who's listening, who's trying to make a go of, go of it at art?
1: So I think, yeah. So when you're choosing, at say a subject, I, remember, I talked to a guy in LA once at an opening and and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this full time now. And I said, well, what kind of you know, art do you like to do? And he goes, well, I'm going to start with landscapes because
0: you,
1: you kind of have to do that first. And I said, I said well, what do you want to paint? He goes, well, I want to paint this. And I can't remember what it was. And I said, well, paint that. He goes, oh, I got to start with landscapes. I, I said, well, do you like landscapes? He goes, no, I hate landscapes. <laughs> I said, well, don't do that. I said, because people will notice that either you're bad at it or that you hate it. And I said, and it'll drive yourself nuts. I said, do what you want to do. And do it better than anybody else. And I think that applies almost to every, any kind of job you want to do is find something that you absolutely love and do it better than anybody else and mm-hmm. only do that thing. And like I say, do all that you can to, to make sure that, you know, people see that you're doing it. And then if it's art related, try to find a gallery that has maybe, you know, that you would feel good hanging, you know, look against other you know, artists that are in that gallery and then again, once you, if you make it into a gallery, don't think that, oh, I've made it into a gallery. That's the other misconception is people go, oh, if I could only get into a gallery, then I'll, I'll have made it. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. And then the next step is to make sure that you know, you're kind of the squeaky wheel and you know working with your gallery owners and, and making sure it's as easy for them as possible to sell your work and make sure that you're nice to them because otherwise you, you know, you're gone and if you're a jerk – they're not going to talk about you or they're not going to help sell your artwork because they remembered that you were not very nice to them. And, and, uh, but they that, that almost applies to just about anything in, in life and, and jobs. And, uh, you just have, you just have to buckle down and, and, uh, you know, do, do your best for sure. So.
0: Sure. I think that advice about being nice is, is so often overlooked, but I think it's so important. You, you, you know, if you're a jerk to people, that, that's just not going to get you very far. <laughs> all right. I've got um, just some kind of quick, I call rapid fire questions here for the end. Um, and you don't have to give quick answers, but um, I've been asking these of all the guests. and I've got some really interesting answers. Um, the first one is once again, back to books. If you had to pick your favorite book or a book that you've recommended to the most people, what would that be?
1: Huh? Like, think real quick here <laughs> um hard. let's see I'm trying to think here I'm looking around on all my books that's Wonder- a
0: very hard question I don't know how I would answer it that is a
1: hard one um I think the most interesting book I've read lately too um hmm I'm reading a good one right now. I'll recommend this one because I have recommended it to a few people and I actually given the book out. So oh that, yeah, that counts. Uh, it's, I think it's called Man Meets Grizzly.
0: Oh wow. Okay.
1: It's kind of early, you know, early big grizzly bear stories from you know Yellowstone and bear attacks and and it was one that my dad uh, gave to me when I was a little kid that really freaked me out. Talking about know, people getting their jaws knocked off and and, <laughs> and there's another one called Yeah Life and Death in Yellowstone, which is a good one too. So great talking about you know running into black bears and and the problems they can cause so (laughs) (laughs)
0: um do you have any favorite documentaries if you if you watch documentaries
1: yes um the lewis and clark documentary i think national geographic did it Mm -hmm. and that was pretty good and then there was i'm trying to think of the other one um The one about wild Russia is fantastic. I think National Geographic did it. Uh-huh. Uh, what's the other one? Um, there's kind of a neat one on uh, an artist named Maynard Dixon. uh kind of explores his early career and, and, and uh, I think he ended up in Utah and, and died in Utah, but uh, he had a pretty – amazing life uh, but it, it's 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 a pretty cool documentary and i think it's on pbs cool
0: i'll have links to all those and i haven't i've seen the lewis and clark one but i haven't seen the other two so I'll, I'll definitely look those up um other than hunting fishing trapping and painting what do you do for fun you said you you like to run anything else that's pretty full plate there with those those four <laughs> and then kids
1: and the kids, too. That's for sure. So, I know. I, I, there's not enough hours in the day for sure or days in the week. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, the last, last few years, I had a I have a guy, I have a friend up the street that owns a Harley Davidson dealership. And he asked me to paint uh, some motorcycles for him at one point, And I never could quite wrap my brain ar- around actually painting a motorcycle for him. Cause he, it was Harley's, but he wanted me to do an Indian something or other, and I thought, well, it needs to be an Indian motorcycle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't mm-hmm. know if I can do it for a Harley <laughs> And then I had another friend who's who was big time into motorcycles and and he's like, well, just paint him a, a paint a motorcycle painting and, and see what happens And that took me I'm not joking about four months to wrap my brain around you know painting something that modern in, you know in my, in my opinion in any way. And I, I I painted him an eight eight foot tall by six feet wide kind of an old one of those old hill climbers. Oh wow! The twenties, and then um, then I thought, hey, I'll do a couple more. So he, had, he anyway, out of his dealership now, he has three eight feet by six feet uh, Harley and Indian uh, hill climber paintings. Um, but then doing those that that opened up some kind of some funny doors uh, for so my side pride. A lot of people. Well, I do ride motorcycles. I'm not a crazy motorcycle person. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my other life, I might be, but I'm not now because I have, like I guess, eight children and, and sure. too much work to get done. Uh, but it's opened up some funny doors over into, into Spain and France, and I've done some other motorcycle paintings. Uh, and some people have, you know, seen it on Instagram and Facebook, and, and I've been invited to some to some shows that I otherwise normally would not be invited to and uh it's just another kind of group of fantastic people that that really appreciate uh the artwork and and uh and and the motorcycles and the history of of you know early motorcycles Cause I, li- I like to paint kind of old motorcycles as well
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, those are my favorite ones anyway and and uh, although recently i'm uh, I, have, I have a seventy four Yamaha xs six fifty and I was out riding with some friends the other night and as as it broke down on me, I thought, you know a new motorcycle might not be a bad idea yeah (laughs) it would work i probably wouldn't die going downhill and i'd be not on the side of the road right now so there's that part of it
0: i'll tell you if you're looking for a a cool motorcycle documentary there's one called long way round have you heard of that one
1: yes that is that is fantastic
0: i just love that one Uh, that's just uh I, I just figured that guy was a. Ewan McGregor was just some Hollywood actor, but he's a tough guy. There, there's no, there's no way you can fake that adventure. I mean, that was that's a re- the real deal.
1: When he starts, it was funny watching him start out. You know, when he was having a few of his wrecks and getting gasoline in his eye and all these horrible little things were happening to him. I thought that would be me. I would be the guy yeah. <laughs> falling down, getting gas in his eye, every dumb little thing happening. That would for sure I'm, the, I'm that guy that always has something screwy happening with him so
0: oh yeah he he learned the uh trial by fire there oh, yeah. um and so in all your travels throughout the west and throughout the world is there one uh event that was the craziest thing that ever happened to you it could be scary it could be funny just a, the most memorable crazy thing that's ever happened to you
1: a good memorable thing that happened to me. Uh, I was hunting with my dad up in Alaska in 2001, I think. And we flew in, it was the Stony river, Alaska. And we flew from, I think it was Anchorage to Lake Clark and then Lake Clark to the Stony river. And then we took another little plane and landed up uh, a little valley, you know, with big, you know, Alaska is fantastic. These big, giant brand new mountains. Mm -hmm. And we landed up this little valley, I think called tired pup Creek. And it was this, this little creek, you know, winding down out of the mountains. And we landed kind of in a rocky uh, riverbed and we're and, uh, moose hunting and, and, and black bear hunting. And and we're there for about three days looking around and, and realizing there's not that many animals. <laughs> and the weather on the second and a half day started coming in. And, and uh, we it started raining one day and we had our hip boots and we're wading through this river. You know, and it was about two feet deep at one point And we made our camp in the middle kind of where the river divided. So we're kind of out in a, probably a seven, eight foot Island mm-hmm. tall. And we are up, to, we had spotted a black bear. So we're hiking towards it. And it, you know, the mountain straight up and, and, uh, uh, my dad couldn't make it. So he, he stayed down kind of below and, and we're, we're hoping to use him as, as we got up higher towards the black bear, he could, in the binoculars, we're hoping he could point, you know, either to the left or the right. Yep. But as we got up, we realized we couldn't even see my dad anymore because the mountain was so steep. It kind of curved, and he's at the bottom and he just completely disappeared. And uh, the weather kind of came in and it was, I mean, it was just a torrential downpour and we kind of hit under a rock and me and the, the guide are, are just kind of, you know, eating Hershey bars and and hoping the rain is going to pass and we couldn't see anything, let alone a bear. I mean, it, it was, you know, the, the clouds had come in, the rain had come in and we're sitting under, you know, in a crack under this rock and we're hearing, you know, other things crash down around us. And my guide kind of goes, because if this rock starts to move, we got to move quick. So what are you talking about? He goes, all those noises. I said, are, he says, are you not paying attention? Those are rocks, just like this one, tipping over and rolling down the hill. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> said, okay, okay. And then uh, we looked for the bear just a little bit more. And he was calling him. He I remember him using the radio to try to call the airplane in, and we couldn't get through a signal through. And uh, we, we we're soaked. We better we better get back to camp. And it's starting to get dark. And we go down and the river that we had crossed that was two or three feet in the morning was now up to the almost top part of our hip boots, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, he, we're holding a stick and he's kind of helped me, you know, cross the river a little bit. And yeah. we stop at one point and, you know, a whole tree floats by us, you know, with the tree stump out and, and we're like, wow, this is getting deep. All right. And then, uh, we kind of go back to camp. And my, my dad was, you know, telling us how he was worried about us and, and, uh, but then the rain keeps coming. It gets heavier and heavier. And this this island where we've made camp, you know, both sides of the river now are all the way eight feet to the top, and, and kind of. And I, I remember taking a leak at the at the where it uh, broke, you know, to go left and right, and seeing the river kind of break over the top of this little island we're at, and thinking, "Oh crap, we're screwed." We couldn't get we couldn't get the radio, you know, to the to the airplane, and and. Uh, we go back down to our camp, and I, I'm I'm starting to dig a trench, you know, seeing the future coming our way. And our guide's like, hey, can I put my camp And the water? The river started, come, you know, kind of breaking through. So I'd already dug kind of a half-trench river to break it off from where our camp was set. And uh, pretty soon where our guide's tent was was a new river. And then it was, you know, one in the morning, totally <laughs> dark, still raining. I'm thinking, man, we're going to make up to swim for it, you know, tonight. And... uh um, about two in the morning, I think the rain just completely stopped. Wow! And we're like, and, and both of us, my dad and I, were like, "Oh, thank goodness!" You know. And then uh, that next morning, you know, we're totally we're still soaked. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we saw where the river was, and and uh, the river had come down quite a bit. But we heard later why the radio couldn't come get it, or they couldn't get the radio, is they had to tie their planes. You know, the big river that our tributary was feeding into was about 20 feet overflow float and, and flooding and they had to tie their planes up into the trees and uh i remember thinking man if we're gonna have to walk out of here this is gonna be a long walk <laughs> and uh, especially in alaska there's no there's no easy way up or down or straight across and uh but anyway yeah we, we were we were able to clear a new kind of r- runway and I, w- I was the first guy out and my dad. He was he told me after he saw me take off because I remember we'd set flags, you know, 80 feet long. We set some flags and our plane was taken off. And I remember we passed the last flag and we're still on the ground Oof. heading straight for a, you know a big line of pine trees. Yeah. Take off and then slowly turn to the side and make it around the trees. And my dad's like, oh, man, if he dies, my <laughs> wife's going to kill me <laughs> or his mom's going to kill me. And we we made it out okay, and and uh, but that was probably the the one time that we've never re- never shot anything on a trip, and and uh, but yeah, weather, I mean Alaska, that's that's the thing is I think you, you, there's always you know the there's no magic answer to hunting, or there's never a guaranteed animal, and and I, th- I think part of it is you gotta put your time in, and and eventually the the universe rewards you, so.
0: Alaska is an amazing place. The the scale I've been up there twice and the scale of the mountains is hard to get your head around when you're used to mountains around here, which are big, you get up there and you see those mountains, you see a plane fly by and you're like, Oh, now I see how big those mountains are. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. That, that is quite the adventure there.
1: Um, are amazing too. My goodness. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you had to pick, um, your favorite location in the American West? I don't know the answer to this. I don't have one. But if you, if you had to pick maybe one or two, is there a certain place you would pick? Um, Just anywhere that's important to you.
1: I think uh, uh, the Yosemite is pretty fantastic.
0: I think you're the third or fourth person to say that. And I've never been there.
1: So I, I was able to go there uh, once a few years ago. And it was in early April, so there's still snow and rain, and not not too many tourists just yet. And holy cow, I, I thought this is in America? Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And I, I've been to Switzerland and, and the Alps and different places, and, and those places are fantastic. But Yosemite's just right here, you know. And yep. the, you know, turn of the century, there was a you know a early campaign for tourism, you know, see America first, and and I'm on that bandwagon for sure. So um, they almost need to do that again. Um, I agree. Another place, not so much in the West, but another place in America that is fantastic and I think is overlooked quite a bit is the Adirondacks uh-huh. in New York. And the lakes and just the – it still feels like you're going back in time still. Some of the camps that are up there still and the lakes and the little small towns. And and uh, and it, to, to me, we, you know, we stayed on, on Brandreth, Brandreth Lake, uh, kind of by Long Lake. And, uh, we had a, a couple of guide boats and we went out in the early mornings when there was mist, you know, out on the lake and, mm-hmm. and just explored a, f- a few of the islands and, and uh, holy cow, it, it was, it was, it was magic to me. So I definitely recommend that place.
0: Cool. Um, so final quick question is, what do you think is the biggest challenge and opportunity facing the American West in the near future?
1: This is a good, yeah, that's a good question. Um, because I think that there's a lot of problems that <laughs> face <Sure>. it. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it is being able to explain, you know, the West and it kind of the, the outdoors to uh, a new generation that is, you know, so obsessed with technology as good as it can be. Uh, I remember I, w- I was in Japan last year for a show and, and I was up riding the train and, and, uh, Ever, ever it was really it was very bizarre and interesting to see that you know, a lot of the younger people were all on their phones and it was very the immediate um, world was right you know within a foot of their face and and, it, and uh, it seemed like that was the only thing that mattered was you know what was right in front of them, you know everyone's head kind of down looking at their phones and, and I see that I see that trickling into you know American society and and uh, it's it's almost it's I don't think I'm that old, but I, I, I must be. I'm, I must be getting old because it's all this newer stuff and the, the the kids that are what their interests are are so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. I, 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 that's what I worry about. And, and I was I was up fishing in, in Afton, Wyoming, just a few weeks ago, and with a friend that's uh, that, that does some. I uh, oh, there's some deer running through my backyard, right? You yeah, know, that was oh pretty, really? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool, actually. Well bucks. Nice. So, um, uh, so yeah, he's, he does some. He's a property manager for the Bass Pro Shops guy, John Morris, mm-hmm. and he was he built a big pond for him. He's done some rivers for him, and uh, and he was showing us the property, and and I were thinking, holy cow, this is fantastic. This is this is like the dream right here, man. And uh, he goes, yeah, because he, he loves Wyoming. He says because it takes him, you know, uh, two weeks, two or three weeks to get permits to do anything with the water, the rivers, and. He says back in Missouri, it takes him, you know, almost two years or, or I can't remember, it was two months or two, something crazy, you know, to to get, you know, the certain permits he wants to be able to do what he wants with the land. And he says he's worried, you know, in five to ten years. Oh, am a little buck. I can't walk into my little tube. <laughs> That's um, awesome. <laughs> it's really cool. In the velvet still it's really cool. Uh, he, he says he's worried in the five or ten years, he says all the liberal uh, 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 weenie kids is in his, his, his words are going to start making laws and make it even more, you know, even harder to do fun things in the outdoors. He said, they're going to, they're going to make so many laws that it's going to be impossible to do anything fun, uh, outside. And, and my, my friends and I have seen it when it's come to shed hunting, you know, now, now you have to take a little course to shed hunts and mm-hmm. I it's a $2 tax on it kind of thing now. And I mean, anything that's remotely fun to do in the outdoors, they want to, they want to make you pay for it. And, and it's just as if they're not nickel and diming you already for every other stupid thing. And I think that's, there's, there's, you know, we're, we're regulating our way out of any kind of fun and, and it makes people kind of go, ah, I don't want to worry about it. And so they just don't do it. Sure. And I think, I think that's, that's, that's what I see happening in the next, you know, five or 10 years.
0: Yeah. That's all very good points. Um, and nobody else has brought that up actually. So those, those are, those are really good points. So um, next to last question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, what would it be? And the people listening to this are just basically anybody that's connected to the American West. Um, you know, everybody from ranchers to conservationists to artists, writers, and everybody in between.
1: I, I, I'd give this advice to my, myself as well as is just whether you think you have time or not, just get outside you know, no matter what. And uh, spend more time outside. I think because you'll—I you, don't think you'll ever re- regret that, and, and ever. So
0: that's good just, advice. Just, that's the whole reason we live out here, you know. Definitely. Um, so, how can listeners connect with you on your the the internet, social media,
1: all that kind of stuff? So, yeah, I have an Instagram account, which is I think what I mainly share my my what I'm up to uh, on. Uh, so, Instagram is Nicholas Coleman Art. And then uh, I have a, uh, a website that's connected to that as well, and it's just nicholascolemanart.com, and then uh, uh, Facebook. And then I kind of do Twitter, but not really, so I wouldn't worry about that. One, so. Got it.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, I'll have links to all that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was very, very interesting. I'm sure we could talk for a few more hours, but um, thanks for taking the time. I know you're really busy.
1: Hey, definitely. Thank you. And if you're ever passing through Utah, definitely come by the studio for sure. So
0: Yeah, I'd love to do that. see what I mean? I told you he was a really cool guy. Thanks so much to Nicholas Coleman for taking the time to chat with me. I thought that was a great conversation and we really covered just about everything that I find interesting. I was also glad to get his book recommendations. It's very rare that I hear about books that I've never encountered before and almost all of his recommendations were new to me so I'm very excited to check those out. Thanks to all of you for listening. Again, if you have any ideas for future guests or feedback or anything else, don't hesitate to reach out. All my contact info is on the Mountain and Prairie website as well as all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your interest. I'll talk to you soon.